Villas Grace Church. Building relationships that make followers of Jesus. Know, grow, go. To know Him, to grow in Him, to go with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue our worship this morning, I pray that we can still bring honor and glory to your name as your word is proclaimed. I pray that we allow your Holy Spirit to convict us, to motivate us to move according to the gospel. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Back in 2002, that would have been 20 years ago, there was a specific neighborhood in Kansas City, Missouri that had the highest death rate amongst those who had cancer. For 10 years, affecting 4,200 patients, over 100,000 prescriptions later, they were able to figure out why this neighborhood in Kansas City, Missouri, had the highest percentage of those dying from cancer. Now, some of you here have actually battled cancer more than once, maybe once, but whether it's once or more than once, you know what it's like. But could you imagine being written a prescription from your physician only to take it to the pharmacy and really end up only taking a placebo and not the actual medication that was written on the script. See, what was happening in this small neighborhood in Kansas City, Missouri was this. The pharmacist decided that he was going to start diluting the medication in order to increase his profits. He did this for 10 years. He did it to 4,200 different patients. He did it on over 100,000 prescriptions. This was a placebo that they were taking. And for some of you that don't know what a placebo is, it's basically you think you're actually taking medicine, but there is no medicine at all. You might as well just be taking a sugar pill. The medication, therefore, was... Useless. The medication, therefore, aided in the patient's death. So let me ask you a question after having shared this story. What would be worse to you? What would be worse? Take a pill not knowing that it had no effect on you at all? Or to know that the pill had no effect, but you took it anyway, living with the consequences? Either you take the pill not knowing that it's a placebo, or you take it knowing it's a placebo, but don't care anyway. Brothers and sisters, that question in this illustration is actually James speaking to us today. Those who treat faith in Jesus like a placebo, those who treat faith in Jesus like it's just some sugar pill that's not going to have any effect on your life anyway, this is the type of faith that leads to death. And this brings us to the title of our sermon this morning. 
Dead faith. Dead faith. We're going to be in James, as stated earlier in chapter 2, as we resume here. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 17. And just like the pharmacist and how he led others to death in Kansas City, we're going to see that's exactly what happens to Christians when they have faith, but it's faith that's actually just dead. It's dead faith. If we remember from... Two weeks ago, we covered James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. We realized that those who act accordingly, those who act according to the Ten Commandments, they love others like themselves for one reason and one reason only, and that reason is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the reason why they can act accordingly. Today, we're going to see the symbiotic relationship between faith and works. Ultimately, we're going to recognize that you cannot have one without the other. So before we say any more, let's go ahead and get into this text this morning. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Amen. As we look at these verses this morning, we're going to go ahead and put them into this one simple sentence to define everything that we're actually seeing. And that sentence states this, Faith that produces works is the only faith that saves. Faith that produces works is the only faith that saves. There is no saving faith outside of faith that actually produces work. And that's that symbiotic relationship that we're talking about between faith and works. Because you cannot have faith without works, and you can't have works without faith. Now, as we look at verse 14, and before we begin, the question James is actually answering here is this. He's actually answering the question, what is genuine saving faith? That's the question that we're being asked this morning, especially as we start here with verse 14. But this just might be the question you might be asking yourself this morning. Because let's not get it twisted. Just because we showed up this morning to church doesn't necessarily mean that we're saved and it doesn't necessarily mean that we're confident in our own salvation because there are those of us here this morning who aren't confident that we're actually saved. Some of us might be sitting here this morning needing a reassurance of why we have that confidence to begin with. But right here in verse 14, we understand that James asks a rhetorical question. In fact, he asks two rhetorical questions. First, what does he say? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What good is it? What good is it for you to just say that you have faith but do not have work? See, this is an acceptance of one's claim to faith. And that's where we begin. If somebody comes to us and says that they have faith, we need to accept that at its face value. Clear, cut, and dry. Now, we do look for fruit to be produced later. That becomes the works. But if somebody does come to us and tell us that they have faith, then we need to take that proclamation at face value. However, this is not an assumption of one's faith. Therefore, if works are absent, then the claim is actually suspect. 
If somebody claims to have faith, but we don't see them producing any works, then we would have to say that that faith that they claim to have in Jesus is actually suspect. So the question we must ask is, what type of works? What type of works are we even talking about here? Now, see, I think it's safe to say, and especially as we stay within the parameters of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and let's go ahead and define the gospel. The gospel is the good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners. Yes, that's right. That's what we are. Every last one of us are hell-deserving sinners, but we are saved through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Now, what type of works are we talking about? Because if that's the gospel, if we're talking about us being hell-deserving sinners, but we have faith in the person and work of Jesus, then the very first work that we must produce according to our faith would be repentance. The very first thing a believer does is repent. That's why Jesus, when we look at the gospel of Mark, he began by saying, for repenting is necessary. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. See what Jesus is saying? Salvation is at hand. Repent. That is the very first work. Now, Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, I want to read these for you. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, now this is Jesus declaring this. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, this is actually similar to Jesus' words in Matthew 25. Some of us remember the account in Matthew 25, but Jesus gives us the example of the sheep and the goats, where the goats come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we, we know you. And Jesus says, no, I, I never knew you. Where were you when I didn't have any clothing? Where were you when I was hungry? Where were you when I was in jail? He says, those that you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. What Jesus is saying is to the goats, not the sheep, to the goats. He's saying, yeah, you might have done some works, but you didn't do it according to your faith in me. See, I think it's safe for us to say then that those who did those works that are being described in Matthew 25 did it because they had a faith unto themselves. They did it for their own pride, their own ego. They had their own motivations that weren't pure before the Lord. Why? Because they didn't have a saving faith in Jesus. Now see, the sheep are opposite. Jesus says to the sheep that, yeah, you did clothe me when I needed clothing. You did give me food when I was hungry. You did visit me in the hospital when I was sick. You did visit me in jail. Those in which you've done to the least of these, you have done to me because the sheep were living out their ministry, their service. They were 
producing works according to their faith in Jesus because they knew that they were hell-deserving sinners in need of a Savior, and their faith in Jesus was the motivation behind the works that they did. That's what we're talking about here this morning. Now, see, here, here's something else that we need to keep in mind. We live in a culture today that actually uplifts a goat because it's an acronym, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. But I don't want to be a goat. In fact, Jesus says the same thing about the goats that he says here in Matthew, Matthew 7 where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then what does he say? He says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus goes on to just be the bearer of bad news to these individuals, these goats, and he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It is very clear from Scripture that it is not good to be a goat, but it is good to be a sheep under the shepherding of Jesus. And therefore, your pastors are under shepherds. They are under shepherds from Jesus, the role that we have, the elders here at Villa's Grace. It is good to be a sheep. It is bad to be a goat. Now, I'll give you a personal example of something that's fresh in all of our minds since Hurricane Ian. We've had a lot of opportunity, as Pastor Jared was sharing earlier. We're trying to just react as opportunities come our way. But as we do that, we come in contact with other institutions. We come in contact with other people. And sometimes you kind of wonder, what is it that they're actually doing? Who are they actually doing what they're doing and what are they doing it and who are they doing it for? Because they may be here, they may have traveled here from around the country to aid in the relief of the hurricane. They may say that they're doing it for Jesus, but if you hang around them long enough, you realize really quickly that they're really just doing it for themselves. See, you can produce works but have no faith. You can say you have faith, but then have no works. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that every organization that has come here has done that. We have worked side by side with some excellent organizations that have been a real encouragement to us here at Villa's Grace in our ministry. Met some incredible people along the way, but not everyone that we have met along the way would be considered to be a sheep. We've met some goats. Now, the second rhetorical question, because remind you, we said that there are two questions being asked here by James, and a rhetorical question is simply just a question that you ask when you already know the answer to the question being asked. So the second rhetorical question is this. He says, can that faith, what? Save him. Can the intellectual faith of just knowing about Jesus save an individual? That's basically what James is asking. He already knows the answer to this question, but clearly from what we just read in Matthew 7 and then Matthew 25 with Jesus saying in Matthew 7, get away from me, I never knew you. And then in Matthew 25 where Jesus, when he comes back and he separates the sheep from the goats, we know very clearly that this type of faith, in fact, cannot save an individual. 
Brothers and sisters, before we get ahead of ourselves, there's an interesting connection between James 2, Matthew 7, and Matthew 25. See, it's what we said earlier. Faith and works have a symbiotic relationship. All of Scripture makes it clear that you cannot have one without the other. However, there's a difference because faith produces works, but works cannot produce faith. That is the difference. Our faith in Jesus is what produces our works, but our works can never produce our faith. Basically, what that means is this. It isn't like Catholicism, and I'm going to use this as an example, where you go into the confessional booth, you confess your sins to another individual, which they would call a priest, and then he says, well, say 25 Hail Marys and you'll be forgiven, or you'll be right with God. See, it doesn't work like that. There is nothing that we can do because after all, what does the gospel tell us? We are hell-deserving sinners. Our salvation happens here. That's why the Holy Spirit is put into our hearts. So once we come to a saving faith in Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit and His work that motivates us, motivates us to go out and do the work. We don't do the work to earn God's favor because that's every religion in the world except Christianity. Christianity is the only religion in the world where you can't do a thing to earn your salvation other than have faith in the work of Jesus. See, that's what really happens. If our works get out ahead of our faith then we're trying to lay claim to the work and the body of work that Jesus has already done and accomplished. Now, in, in verses 15 and 16, as we continue here, we understand that it illustrates a broken connection between faith and works. Because what does James go on to say? He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Now, mind you, I would say that we've all been guilty of this from time to time. If, if you, I don't believe that this is a thin branch that I'm about ready to walk out on. But if anybody of us in here says to ourselves, oh, I've never said that, I've never done that before, I, I would encourage you to reinvestigate your life. But this is a, a challenge for all of us. If one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? See, this illustration is not an exercise in sympathy. That's not what James is asking us to do here. He's not asking us to be sympathetic. But brothers and sisters should be sympathetic. So it isn't like we shouldn't be sympathetic. Yes, we should be sympathetic to needs of others. But what we cannot do is this. We cannot be capable without action. That's really what's being highlighted here. We can't find ourselves in a position where we can actually act upon the need that's there, but we just choose not to. We, we just say, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to have to sit this one out. See, that doesn't do anybody any good. If we are capable, we need to act upon what it is that we're being called to do. And sometimes, sometimes we can't hesitate. And I'll give you an example that just happened this week with me personally. Pastor Steve called me Thursday morning, gave me the state of Norma Berry. He had just been there with his life group the night before. 
And the first thought I had was, well, it's Thursday. I, I really wanted to take this afternoon off. You know, she's going back home Friday night. I'll just probably, what I could do is maybe after church on Sunday, I could run over there and see her. But there was something that just told me, no, you need to go today. In my sin, I hesitated. But after finding out what we found out this morning, I am so glad that I went there on Thursday evening. I'm so glad that I had an opportunity to spend the 15 to even 20 minutes that I spent with her even though it wasn't a long amount of time. She had just had her dinner served, but it was awesome because I'll never forget that now because I was able to talk to her about what she ordered for dinner. And that was important to Norma because any of you that knows Norma knows what she loved to do. And for those of you that have been at this church for a long time, you know that she was always the one to set up our dinners here. She was a skilled culinary cook. She was in the restaurant business for years. If we're capable, we need to act. This hit me hard this week. Because what if I wouldn't have acted? I wouldn't be able to sit here this morning and share with you what I just shared. Each and every one of us have things in our lives right now. There's work laid out for us by the Lord, and we're being called to act. Don't find yourself being capable, but then not acting on what you're able to do. There's a story, I'm not exactly sure, it was very difficult to find the origins of the names. There's a story about a queen, and apparently it involved her majesty's coachman. The queen went to a play I guess it was a very emotional place. She found herself very emotionally overtaken, even cried at the outcome of the play because it was sad. But see, she had left her coachman out with the carriage, which was a custom because he didn't have the social status to, to come inside where it was warm. It was in the middle of winter. And by the time they got out there after the play, he was frozen to death. But the queen didn't even pay him any attention. See, she could go to a play and get caught up in the emotion. But then in real life, when it was right in front of her face, she ignored it. That's being capable without action. We have a tendency to do that ourselves, don't we? We live in a society where we have a tremendous amount of entertainment coming at us, more so than what we know has ever existed in history before. And sometimes we'll be more emotionally engaged in a Netflix series that we're watching or a movie that we're into or even politics that we have streamed to us on a daily basis, but there might be a situation right in front of us that we choose to ignore. We cannot be capable without action. Brothers and sisters, if we are capable to act, then we need to allow our faith to produce the action. And that's the most important thing. If we don't, then we are what we have really already stated. We possess what we've already stated. We, we possess dead faith. Remember the illustration from the pharmacist from the outset. So, so what is it? What is it? What would be worse to you? 
Would it be worse for you to take a pill not knowing that it didn't have any effect on you at all? Or would it be worse for you to take the pill knowing that it was just a placebo, a sugar pill, and you would live with the consequences of taking that placebo anyway? What would be worse? That's who James is calling out here this morning. Brothers and sisters, this is James speaking to us. He's speaking to us because we have a tendency to maybe take the placebo. We cannot treat Jesus, we cannot treat our faith in Jesus like it's just a placebo. See, that's something that we get wrong time and time again. We think just because we share Jesus with somebody and they maybe nod their head yes, or maybe verbalize a yes, that they're saved all of a sudden. Not if they don't produce work. Again, what's that first work that we should see produced? Oh, that's right, repentance. The very first thing that must happen after coming to a saving faith in Jesus is to turn away from your sin and turn back towards God. It's only our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit living within us that affords us the opportunity to turn away from our sin and turn back towards God. This is the type of faith, though, when we treat it like a placebo, just the intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is with no works at all, that placebo, that's the type of faith that leads to death. That's just like the pharmacist and how he led others to death in Kansas City, Missouri. So as Joe comes up and we wrap up this morning, we understand this is why James wrote what he wrote in verse 17. See, he says this, he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Thomas Lee says this. I just want to read his quote verbatim. He writes, A faith not accompanied by action, that is faith alone, having no works to distinguish it, is dead. Anything with life produces fruit. The living are the acting, creating things that reveal their nature and character. Faith in Jesus produces actions revealing the nature and character of Jesus. The dead lie still doing nothing. So faith that lies still inactive proves it is dead. True faith brings salvation and life, not death. Brothers and sisters, we must live out the embodiment of faith. We must show others the same type of love that we show ourselves because after all, that's what we saw last time we were in James. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. The verses we went over right before these verses. What was James telling us? Love others like you love yourself. After all, wouldn't you clothe yourself if you found yourselves with no clothes? Wouldn't you feed yourself if you were hungry? Or would you need clothing and food, but only remind yourself to go in peace, be warmed and filled? And this is why we said this morning, that main idea that wrapped everything in for us here in James, we said, faith that produces works 
is the only faith that saves. Brothers and sisters, the greatest encouragement of the gospel is the fact that it has absolutely nothing to do with our life here and now. But our life here and now has everything to do with eternity to come. See, our faith is all about where we're heading. Not where we're, we've gone, not where we're at currently. It's where we're heading. It's about eternity. It's our faith in the work of Jesus that has made that possible. Our faith in His work motivates us to produce work that only brings honor and glory to His name. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue, I pray that we can be a church to share the gospel with others. I pray that we can pursue you in such a way that everything we pursue is all about bringing honor and glory to the name of Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, look us up on our website, www.villasgrace.com or drop us a line via email, connect at villasgrace.com.